and hope and encouragement in this letter. And I think, dear brothers and sisters, this is a letter that is right for our times because, because it's answering, seeking to answer the question, what does it look like to live faithfully to God and for the good of the world in a culture and in a world that is indifferent to or downright hostile to the truth claims of Christianity? So, how can one be faithful? That is what Peter is seeking to address and to answer, and we would do well now to listen to what he has to say. So if you would turn your eyes and perk up your ears and hear God's word to us, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating what he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers, flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? O oh, Father, Son, and you Holy Spirit, would you now take these words, would you open our eyes to them, and would you impress them deep into our hearts, that we might be changed by them, that we might know life, and that we might know it to the full, as you have said you have come to do, O oh Jesus. So now, Holy Spirit, work, we pray. In your name, amen. amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't know many of you, which probably means in turn that you don't know me. My name is Ryan Anderson. As Pastor Mark mentioned, I am the RUF campus minister at the, at, uh, over in Fort Worth at TCU. And uh, we have been there for going on. We're beginning our seventh year there. I say we because I do have a family. I'm married to Laura, my wife. She is amazing. And we hope to bring our family, our three kids over here sometime during the summer while we are here with you all. I have three girls, so there's a lot of pink in my house. Our oldest are five, the twins, Audrey and Evangeline, and our baby, well, she's not being much of a baby anymore, Iris, she is to be two at the end of the month. Iris is sweet, but she is, um, she's looking for a new home, and so if y'all know of anybody that, uh, that, uh, that might in fact know want to house a young uh, two-year-old, well, that would be great, I'm just kidding. I would never, ever, ever do that to you. <laughs> I'm just playing. She's sweet, I promise, I promise. We love her, and I am a better man because of the four women in my life. Well, I mentioned that we're going to be looking at uh, the book of 1 Peter, but before we go there, I'd like to begin and introduce to you a story that came out several years ago. It was during the 2014 Winter Olympics. The current reigning men's ski halfpipe champion, I'm sure you know who that is. I'm sure you already know, but in case you didn't, is a man named David Weiss. He is a 26-year-old American, and he captured that title at the most recent Winter Games in Russia. 
Well, in the aftermath of his gold medal win, the press highlighted Wise's alternative lifestyle in a piece that they did on him. The title was this, David Wise's alternative lifestyle leads to Olympic gold. And when you read about Wise's lifestyle, the author highlighted how radical or how different he was to the mainstream culture. Let me highlight some of those things for you. Ready? I'm just going to highlight three. First of all, he was married and 23. Alternative. Secondly, he and his wife had a young child. Alternative. And thirdly, he thought that one day he might leave the sport to become a pastor because he was a Christian. There is your alternative lifestyle. The Wise article shows us how Christianity is viewed in a major pockets of the world. It may not be here so in the north part of the Metroplex, but if the data is right, the culture is increasingly moving away from a Christian perspective, worldview, and way of life. Here's some data. It's not comprehensive, but it is instructive about our time here in the post-Christian West. Did you know that over 100 million people in the U.S. alone have no contact with the church? That number was 50 million only in 1991. The number has doubled. Secondly, and that of that 100 million, do you know that 85 million of those people have never, ever been to a worship service? And they have no intention of doing so. And lastly, every year, in the United States alone, over 3,500 churches close their doors. A post-Christian West is what we're in, brothers and sisters. And it's into that context that Peter writes. All of this simply underscores this vital importance of Peter's message to us in our day and age. Remember the situation of his original audience. It's Nero's Roman Empire. It's the early 60s. And Christians periodically suffered horribly and lived life at the margins or the fringes of their culture, in the dominant culture. And if, if that is true, you need to begin to understand that their day and age is not unlike ours itself. And to encourage his readers, Peter, because of their situation, was a recipe for discouragement. Peter reminds them of the glorious promises, the glorious promises that they have in a God who has loved them, and the finished, secure work of Christ on their behalf. You heard about those soaring promises last week. If not, I urge you to go back and listen to Pastor Mark's MP3 on your website. This is Peter's opening salvo. It is soaring about this grace that we have. And in what we've read this morning, Peter continues his encouragement to live alternatively as exiles and strangers, as he calls us, in this world. And it's my hope for us this morning, brothers and sisters, that you would see, that you would get a glimpse, a taste of just how much Christ loves you through his resurrection and death. That you might taste that in some measure. You see, it's easy, is it not, for familiar news to become irrelevant news? 
And so may our hearts be stirred this morning as we listen to Peter's word because he is going to show us how we can live faithfully in this culture to Christ. And it's simple. Here it is. Ready? We have to look. We have to look. And so Peter's going to show us three distinct ways that we are to look so that we might have hope, so that we might be encouraged, so that we might be able to love the world again to life around us, as this is our calling. And so Peter opens up by saying first, you'll see it there in verses 10 and 11, that we must look back. That we must look back. Let's take a look at what I mean by looking back. Do you notice there that Peter says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, there it is. Peter is telling us that the... Old Testament prophets, what we know as the Old Testament corpus of the prophetic writing, that those prophets, that those prophets saw the grace that was to be his original audiences, and by extension, yours and mine. Peter tells us that they saw that grace, and even though it was millennia ahead, I mean, well, maybe millennia, uh, but certainly centuries ahead in time, that they, they saw it, but they saw it as a shadow. They didn't see it clearly. That is the substance about which they wrote and they spoke. And Peter wants us to go back and to begin to see, to look back, to see what they saw. The Spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, showed them what we were to become beneficiaries of. And you see it right there in verse 10. The grace that was to be yours. These prophets searched it out diligently, Peter tells us. And in another writing of Peter's, in the second letter, he says this, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enabling men to see that grace that would one day be ours. Now, we don't know exactly how that happened, okay? And we don't know exactly the contours of what they exactly saw. It was not, though, as though Malachi sort of took out his stylus, unrolled the parchment, dipped it in some ink or whatever he was writing on then, and the eyeballs sort of glazed over, rolled back in his head, and he just began to sort of stenographer out whatever God was giving him. No. The prophets were very much involved as their own persons. That's what this means, that they were searching intently. But they were involved. And the point, dear friends, is to see what they saw. They saw the grace and they also saw, as we see, the suffering and the subsequent glories concerning God's rescuers and the Messiah. In other words, what they saw, here it is, was all about Jesus. It was all about Jesus and what he would do for his helpless people. And this, what this meant was, was they began to wonder, well, how? How in the world could the Lord's Christ the Lord's anointed suffer in this way. This seems perplexing. How would that work out? And how, after his death, after his suffering, how might he now experience glory? This just doesn't seem to be. And so they see dimly, opaquely, what you and I, Peter, tell us, tells us, what we begin to see clearly. Let's take an example of this. I want you to take the book of Jonah. Kids, you may remember the story of Jonah because of that very famous fish that swallowed him up. But there's more at stake there than just the man in the belly of a fish. Do you know that? 
that what Jonah is actually telling us in the sum total of his message is this, that God came to Jonah and told him to go to those pagan Assyrians in the capital city of Nineveh. And what was he to do when he went there? He was to extol and to tell of God's wonderful and lavish grace on sinners. And do you know what Jonah knew? Jonah knew that God was kind and compassionate. And so you know what Jonah did? He ran far, far away from Nineveh. In fact, he tried to go the opposite direction. Why? Because he knew God was kind. Well, eventually, through the fish episode, after becoming fish bait and fish vomit, Jonah finally packs up his bags and goes to Nineveh and proclaims the wonderful saving grace of God that salvation belongs to the Lord and the city repents. Now, you may go, well, where's Jesus in all of that? Where's Jesus in that prophet's message? And the point is, is this. Well, he is showing us that in the progression of In the progression of redemptive history, we come to learn how God will save people who are dead set against Him. That God Himself would come in the person and work of Jesus to secure that salvation. Friends, here's what Peter is telling us. He's saying, look back and know what the Old Testament prophets saw in the sufferings and the glories, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is exactly what those who preach the good news to them and to us as well are saying. Here's what I want you to be staggered by this morning. That you have access. That you have insight into things like that men like Jeremiah, that men like Isaiah, Malachi and Hosea only saw dimly. The gospel. The gospel. Peter wants you to set your heart there and to see that. It is so important because he wants you to understand that the prophets tell one story. That is the story of God's redemptive work in the world. And that Peter's listeners, many of them now non-Jewish Gentiles, are now recipients of that story. And they're now beneficiaries of the grace that that story is all about. And guess what? That's for you and for me as well. And so Peter urges us to look back such that we might see that this story is ours and that it is a story of glory preceded by suffering. And that's critical, friends. As Peter is going to tell us later in his letter, do you remember this? 1 Peter chapter 4. He's going to root what I'm about to tell you And what he has told us about the sufferings and glories of Christ just here. He's going to root chapter 4 in what I just told you. He says this, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Why? Because that was Jesus' very own path. And the great hope that comes from knowing that after the suffering, after trials, there is glory immeasurable on offer to all who are connected with Him. And that is meant to provide you with an astounding and great, great hope. G.K. Chesterton, that great British writer, once said, I had always felt life as a story. And if there is a story, there is a storyteller. Do you see, dear friends, yourself as part of this great story of God lavishing His grace on kindness 
precisely on people who do not deserve it. The prophets were serving you. They couldn't see it. And do you know that? Do you see that? And when you look back, and when this begins to get inside of you, there is real power to live faithfully in the world. And there's more that Peter wants us to see as well. Do you know what that is? Not only does he want us to look back, not only to look back, believe it or not, we're privileged to see something else that others cannot see. What is it? Well, let's look secondly as we look in. As we look in. Not only looking back, but looking in. Look with me at verse 12. Peter has already told us that prophets searched and considered things that were ultimately not made known to them. And in verse 12, we see that they, the prophets, are not the only ones who didn't see what we get to. Did you see it there? We're told this. That it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things, that's a key word, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Things, there it is again, into which angels long to look. Angels. Peter tells us that the angels themselves long to look into these things. What in the world is he talking about? Well, first of all, angels long. This idea of longing. This idea of, it's a strong word communicating desire. Or strong desire. One commentator puts it this way, way, that it would not be so strong to use the word obsessed. To use the word obsessed. And our translator, uh, I mean, rather Peter says this, that this longing, this longing to see is a very, very special word. It's that saying of like, you know when you might be at a, at a sporting event or you might be out in public and you sort of crane your neck? Oh, all of y'all just craned your necks. That was pretty funny. You all went like this. What is that? You're craning your neck to see, right? You're peering into. It's that same language that when Mary went to the tomb to look for Jesus, what did she do? She craned her neck to look into. It wasn't just to see like you might see my hand go like this. It is a seeing that seeks to perceive, to grasp, to understand. And so what Peter is telling us is that the angels themselves, the perfect angels, the angels who have never fallen and who have never sinned, that they crane their necks with an obsession to look into something. And what are those things? He tells us things into which angels long to look. They are the same things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. In short, dear friends, the angels long to look into with the highest interest the very gospel itself. And Peter is urging you and me to take up the practice of looking into and being astounded by the rich grace that comes to us in that glorious good news. Think about it for just a moment. Angels are without sin. They surround God in the heavenly court. And their deepest interest is to understand and to look into the gospel. The implication is simple. That we too should be the sort of people who look into the gospel with the same wonder and interest. We see we have access to that which the angels do not. And why should we look into it? Well... It's the only way you're ever going to have the power to live an alternative lifestyle. Remember what the gospel means, right? It's a good report about something that has happened in real space and time. In other words, it's history, dear friends. It's an event. And for Peter, 
The gospel is the earth-shattering news that God has come in Jesus to reconcile sinners and the entirety of the world to Himself. It is the news concerning that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications surrounding that event. And this news, though, it has a bearing on your life. I think this is critical. I think this is critical. Children, think about it this way. You might think about it like this. The lottery winner, this would be the news, ready? The lottery winner just won, I don't know if this happened last night, but just won $250 million. That is some news. But here's where the news becomes good. You're the winning ticket holder. It's news that has a bearing on your life. It's news that changes you. That's gospel. That's good news. And because the gospel is about what has happened, hear me well on this. It is never, ever, ever primarily about advice on how to live your life. It is news, dear friends, and not advice. Sure, sure, the Bible is full of moral instruction and how we ought to live in the world, but it is not primarily about that. It is rooted in the historical events of a dead man dying and walking out of the grave and how that news changes and liberates everything. That news changes us. Now, why is this so important? Because I want you to know this. You see, perhaps you might be someone here today who is investigating the truth claims of Christianity. Maybe you're not so sure. Maybe a a friend has brought you and you would not say that you yet follow Christ. What I want you to hear and understand that what lies at the very core of the Christian message is not about trying harder. It's quintessentially not about being a better person. It is quintessentially at its core not about trying to earn or to try to win God's approval through our moral efforts, through being an accepting person, through reading our Bible more and attending church more. Those are not the things that the gospel is. Instead, the gospel is the news that God has done everything to bring us back to himself. And I would urge you to consider that. But for those of us who are in the faith, for those of us that would take the name Christ on us, this is so critical. I want you to also see this. When's the last time you just stopped and marveled at your salvation? And just marveled at it. That you got in. That Christ loved you. Have you ever stopped for a second to just think about the wonder of that? Remember what we know to be true. That salvation is a gift. Remember that it is not like God one day to look at us and say, and to see how much we really wanted Him. Or to see how much one day we would. And then he, in fact, saved us. No. Remember what Romans 5.10 clearly tells us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You know what lies at the heart of the good news then? Here it is. That nobody wanted God before God wanted us. The only people that God ever saves are precisely the people who don't want him. Isn't that amazing? That God then comes in 
He changes us. He changes our hearts. He unleashes our wills so that we might want him. But the saving mercies of God come to people profoundly who are enemies and who don't want him. Has Has that just captured your heart lately? Have you marveled at that staggering grace of God? It's for you. And Peter is urging us to see it. Why? Because the angels themselves look into it and stand, I don't know if they have jaws, but with jaws wide open. With mouths agape. Because it's unbelievable that God would do this. Peter is making the point not only to look back and to know that the prophets were serving us, but also to look into the very heart of the gospel itself, something that the angels are craning their necks to see. And God delights in saving sinners. In fact, if you, I just want to say this. If you do not know your, this promise to you, that God has made things right between you and Him through faith alone in Jesus, as one Puritan pastor put it, every trial, every trial then will become a double trial. Do you know what what he means by that? That if you are not convinced that God loves you in Christ, every trial that you face will be seen as a double trial. Because the trial itself will be hard enough, but then you'll always be wondering, why is God doing this to me? He must not love me. And for a letter that's centered on helping people in trials, you would think that it would be critical that you understand what lies at the very heart of the gospel. But that's not all. That's not all that Peter is encouraging us to look at. Not only to look back and to look in, but to also look forward. And it's there that we turn now in verse 13, where Peter invites us, encourages us, I would even say he commands us to look forward. Take a look with me there. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. There it is. On the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Peter now urges us in the way that we should live. He is connecting with what he is about to say and what follows with what he has already said behind. And this is a little hinge verse here. It's where everything swings. In fact, one commentator, Edmund Clowney, that late theologian, said this that Christian living always begins with therefore. Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until he has celebrated the wonders of salvation in Jesus Christ. And what does Peter tell us? He tells us this, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does he mean? He is urging us, dear friends, to look forward. Let me see if I can explain for a moment. One of the major themes of 1 Peter is the theme of hope. And I think that unless we understand not what we mean by hope, but what Peter means by hope, then we won't understand much of what Peter is trying to tell us. Now when we think of the word hope, don't we? I think it's important for children as well. Children, don't we say, well, when we hope in something, we're really just kind of wishing for it? You know, we might say something like this. You might hear adults or your parents say something like this. Well, I hope the Rangers can turn it around the back half of the season. Right? Which is indicating what? This sort of wish fulfillment in something that is quite uncertain. Or you might hear your parents say something like this. I say this a lot in my house. Or I sure hope my property tax values don't go up this year. What's odd about that is that one of the things that's most certain, anyways, we'll get there in a little bit. But that's not what Peter means when he uses the word hope. For him, hope is something 
far more robust, something far greater, and something far, far, far more sure. When Peter talks about the biblical idea of hope, for him it is confidence. That's a key word. It is confidence in a future certainty. A confidence in a future certainty. And what that means is, as one pastor put it, I'm just going to read at length the quote that he wrote. He said, hope is a sure and certain anchor of the soul that orients your present and assures you no matter what storms may rage, that all suffering will be healed. That all the inscrutable contradictions will one day vanish. That something so beautiful and so harmonious will one day come to pass. That it will suffice for all the broken hearts. Reconcile all the resentments and atone for all of the crimes of man's inhumanity against man. That one day we shall embrace one another and weep. And it will make up for, and more than make up for, everything that has happened. That's hope. With a nod to the brothers Karamazov, of course. Peter is saying, therefore, look forward to this grace that will be brought to you. That same grace that the prophet saw. And he isn't saying, do this passively. No, this language here, did you see it there? He says, prepare your minds for action. The, the literal rendering of that from the Greek is to gird up the waist or the loins of your mind. In those day and age, men wore long flowing robes, almost something like this. And they would grab the back of it, pull it up, wrap it around their waist so that they might be able to run. Our common idiom might be to roll your sleeves up or to put your shoes on and to get ready for work. Peter is saying this is an active thing. It's something that we must do, that we, that we look into and we do it not passively, but that we actively set our hope on to the future. Now this is what's so important. You might find this to be strange, but what Peter is saying is this. To hope for Peter is to, try to put this as clearly as I can, is to grab that future, to pull it into the present, and to live life on the basis of it. That the biblical idea of hope is to grab what we know will be true, to pull it into the present, and then to begin to do life on the basis of it. That's the only way you're ever going to be able to face trials and sufferings of all kind. Now you might find that to be strange, but I'm telling you, even if you're not a Christian, there is no other way to live. Here's what I mean. Human beings are hopelessly hopeful. They're always living. They're always living with some vision of the good life. Reaching out forward, whether it's in Jesus or not. And bringing it into the present. And living life on the basis of it. And so Peter is just saying, what really, really matters is not that you live a hope-filled or a helpful life. It's what he says, to set that hope, what? Fully on the grace to be revealed to you in Jesus. And I think that stands as a sobering reminder for us. What are the things, dear friends, that you are placing your hope into? You see, for many of us it is, well, I just hope. Life will be meaningful. Life will have value if I could just raise my kids to know Jesus. And they're raising mine. I want that too but it will sorely let me down. And it will sorely let you down if you place your hopes there. Early on in my career, I faced a job loss. I had my hope pretty set on a job until what? Until God in His kindness reminded me, do not set your hope fully 
on your job. Instead, set it on Jesus. So what is that for you? Is it your health? Is it the shape of your body? Children, is it your academic achievements in the college that you might want to go to one day? Can we hear Peter's kind words to us? Don't do it. Set your hope fully on Jesus. Hope is powerful. It orients the life. It really directs us in all that we do. For those of you that might be familiar, as an illustration, you might know J.D. Vance in his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. He talks about the resolve of his often colorful, to say it lightly, grandmother. Growing up in a post-World War coal mining community, she faced challenges beyond what most of us could ever imagine. But she kept pressing on and loving those in her life. Vance, the author, writes about his mammal and the disappointment that she saw, including drug addiction that would one day consume her daughter, J.D.'s mother. And he writes this, Mamma never lost that hope. After more heartache and more disappointment than I could possibly fathom, her life was a clinic in how to lose faith in people. But Mamma always found a new way to believe in the people she loved. Her hope allowed her to forgive Papa after the rough years of her marriage, and it convinced her to take me in when I needed her the most. In light of this glorious gospel, Peter is saying, set your hope, look forward to, on nothing else than that which will one day be yours in full. It is one of the ways that we live in the midst of our trials and our sufferings. Because of what Jesus has done, our story ends gloriously. You know that, right? You really do live happily ever after with Jesus. My question is, is how often do you meditate and think on that? Do you think your day might be changed if you gave 15 to 20 minutes to just think about the last chapter of your existence? And to sing of the praises that God is bringing you into? Some of you are closer to that end than others. And yet some of you, it will come quickly. Do you see that great end that Peter is saying, put your hopes squarely on? It too is one of the very few ways that you will ever, ever, ever be able to live an alternative lifestyle. And it's also one of the most, it is the most powerful way for living faithfully to Christ in a way that fuels mission for the world around you. Do you know that McKinney, that the surrounding areas, the neighborhoods, I came up Alma right here, it's just exploded in the last five or six years. Do you know how they're going to know Jesus? By you and me setting our hopes fully on Him. That's the only way mission can ever be fueled. And so I urge you, I exhort you, I encourage you to see what the prophets long to see. To see what the angels crane their necks into to get a glimpse of. And to see what Peter is saying, put your hope squarely on. That is this wonderful, wonderful message that Jesus Christ loves sinners. I need to close. And so as I do, I want to leave you with another sporting event. I'm sorry today for the non-sport folks. An English football team known as the Madrone Football Club, several years ago, their win-loss record was utterly pitiful. 
I mean, it almost made you cry, it was so bad. They hadn't won a game. And they'd suffered losses every week, like 12 to nothing. This is soccer, by the way, not football. 15 to 2. 22 to 0. And their worst, here it is, 55 to nothing. Yeah, I mean, I just feel all that you just said. Yes. Oh. The embarrassment was so bad that when they took a team picture, only eight men wanted to be in the thing. (laughs) But if you listen to what some of the players said in the face of their constant losing, listen to what one of them said. Even though we get beat every week, I look forward to every Saturday. How in the world can they say this? Well, another player answers it. I love this. If you're on a team that wins every week, you're not going to get excited about it. But when we win some games, we're going to get really excited about it. It will be bigger for us than any other team. We'll enjoy it more. It's as if he is saying what? That the losses are sweetening the inevitable victory. Brothers and sisters, do you see that what the prophets search for and what the angels long into and what Peter's seeing, that right now, that with all of your future sorrows, trials and sufferings, that Jesus is sweetening your victory? That is the promise of the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done for us, even our trials are used in the service of our joy. Amen! Hallelujah! That this is what our Savior does for us. And when you see that, that God loves you like that in Christ, there is power, power to serve, and power to give your life away for God's glory in the world and for the blessing of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your Son, that who along with him you indwell us by your Spirit. Oh, that you might strengthen us for our day and age, and that you might encourage us and remind us of this glorious gospel. Take these things now, Lord, Lord, we pray, press them deep into our hearts that we might be moved to see the beauty of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.